Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmers Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hi, my name is Grace Perry. I work at Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I am the host of these episodes where we hear directly from small family farmers throughout California, getting the real information and the stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we pay particular attention to the innovative work small-scale farmers are doing to keep their food safe to eat and share techniques, farmer to farmer. Today, we find ourselves at Vitis and Ovis Farm, a regenerative family farm in the Cape Valley. Vitis and Ovis is a small, multi-generational, Swiss-American-Ethiopian family farm. Let's meet them. My job here on the farm is working with the machinery, helping with every job from planting to pruning to harvesting. So I'm doing more of the heavier work. I grew up on a tobacco farm in Switzerland. Eventually I went on to study agriculture and then specialized in entomology and then further specialization in Berkeley nearby, UC Berkeley, on biological control. So biological control is to use nature to solve your insect or also disease problems. When you have either an imported pest, could have been got into a country by accident, or if you have a locally developing pest, is to find out you know, the system and figure out you know, what kind of natural control exists. Could be other insects who would eat those. Good example is ladybugs and mealybugs, for example. That's sort of a good example. Now let's meet Barbara. I'm Barbara. I'm part of this farm operation in the sense that I keep the records and keep us on track with, with things that we need to do on the business side. I'm an ecologist, so I keep trying to bring in the ecological side as much as possible. About 35 years ago or so, we, we worked overseas, but we were had a home base in Davis, which we would be come back to every year. And we thought, well, we don't have to be in Davis. We could get out be out in the country. And we're working in agriculture and ecology, so we wanted to kind of walk, you know, walk that talk. So we came out here to Cape Valley, which is, a, you know, a very um, small valley uh, as opposed to the Central Valley, which is very, you know, really large farms. These are small. And we looked for a small farm that we could purchase. So we bought it about 35, 36 years ago. And it has taken us a long time to decide what to do with it. Now let's meet Giselle. Hi, my name is Giselle, and I work on the farm here with my parents and do a lot of manual labor and then also figuring out where we're headed with the farm. We would spend a lot of time out here growing up, and even when we didn't have too much growing, my father always found ways to make sure we were hard at work. (laughs) And then just the opportunity, I moved back here from studying and just the chance to work with my parents here has come up. And so, yeah, we just tried to do something all together. We'll also hear from Giselle's son, Jacob, who loves growing up on the farm and riding the tractor with Hans in the background a few times throughout this episode. Barbara shares how long they've been farming the land and the beginnings of the farm. This used to be a sort of derelict old almond orchard. They weren't producing, so we pulled down all the almond trees. Then we built the house, and we decided to take, you know, it's on a slope. And so we're up in in Cape Valley, but up nestled against the hills with a beautiful stand of blue oaks above us. We had to 
find what kind of agriculture would work on sloping land like that, and grapes are a real logical one. So we worked with some friends of ours, the Ramander family, that were going sort of going into grapes, and we worked with them to design a vineyard, about a two-acre vineyard, that we planted in, I believe it was 2000. I think so. We made a field blend and certain varieties that you, you get what you grow, you put it into the wine. And we've done that for many years. We were at one time co-owning a winery with the Romingers, which is not in business anymore. But we've found different ways to make that wine, usually just for our own consumption. We may go into more commercial production at some point. So that brought us out here. That was 2000. We've had the, the grapes all that time, recently replanted. But since we're now based here all the time, we really thought, can we do something with the whole land, which is another five or six acres of rangeland that was grazed by sheep. This is where Giselle sort of entered in and saying we could really do something interesting and more on permaculture lines. It's an 11 acre farm that's kind of very long and it goes up the hill to a certain extent. So we have the two acres of the vineyard and then in the only flat place is where we have our vegetable garden and, and a sort of an heirloom orchard. Barbara is giving us a description of what the farm looks like today. Hans has put in old heirloom trees, I think 40 of different varieties, many of which he, he knew from Europe. And that's given us a good idea of what does grow and what doesn't grow. <laughs> so, And then, then we have the house and native plantings. Wherever we can, we try to grow, grow native plants. So we're restoring some of the native plants on the slope back here. And then the rest of it is where we've put in these whales. It is quite a, a hilly land, so we must be very careful in farming it. And we want to really be careful to conserve the water, but also not to have any erosion from the soil. And I think that those swales, the uh, heavy equipment permaculturalists who helped us were really good. They really understood how to understand the terrain and put in these swales. So we're quite excited about that. And then at the top of the property, midway, we had built a sheep barn. We call it the sheep barn. And we did have sheep that came in to graze. We took them from our a neighbor's ranch and we brought them in really to uh, reduce the weeds and have fire control and have some of the nutrient cycling that, that livestock bring you. Now that we have the young trees, we don't want to have the sheep in there, but the geese... We're very hopeful for them. We do have a few geese and ducks, and they're, they're going further and further away. They're very much free-range, uh, so they do go down into the orchard. We can control that when we need to, but it's, right now it's um, really open grazing for the ducks. Barbara describes what swales are. They occur naturally, but these were obviously produced by the heavy equipment operators, is a, a sort of configuration of the soil so that the water will go, it's channeled a little bit, and it will go down as water wants to go, but also there's hills on either side, and it will work its way into the hills as well. So it's a way of collecting the water very slowly. You know, the whole, the whole goal is to really slow down the water and let it permeate. And it's the curve. The <laughs> contour. Oh, they go along the yeah. They do go along the contours of the of the land. Using the contours as a guide for the the water, and so the flowing, let's say from left to right along the hill, descending down and and penetrating into the the grounds. The idea being that there's no water going off the property. Yeah, and the the left to right is very much following the contours. If you look up to the hills, that's where the creeks all come down and take that pattern. So we just have sort of replicated the, pat the natural pattern. Mm. Yeah. It's been about two years that we've been developing our plan. And then a year ago, we did a lot of big earthworks to put in the swales. So then this year we could do really our planting. We're not really expecting much production for another two years. Yeah, planting and then um, increasing our duck operation. 
So we started really small. We started with seven ducks and just to sort of know the animals. And then we went up to 22 ducks. And then in a month, we'll have another 24 coming. We still have a lot of projects we want to get ready. Like I really want a good worm bin. We did really big irrigation projects, uh, part of the earthworks. That's just making sure everything works. Giselle tells us about the fruit trees they just planted and what folks can expect to see from Vitis Inovis as they grow. Right now, we've planted mostly elderberry, about 300 elderberry, and we're using the native California elderberries, the Sambuca cerulea. And that, they're really hard to find seedlings of the native variety, so... We worked with somebody who used to be part of Cloverleaf Farm, Katie Fiery. She helped propagate a lot of the seedlings for us. So we'll see, and they're all just from like seeds that were collected from farms around here or like nature areas. So we'll see what happens. There's a lot of diverse genetic diversity, I think, in what we've planted. Um, and then we also have about 150 pomegranates that we put in and... 30 fig trees. So each crop, each um, tree has like a row or several rows on these swales to themselves. And then some mulberries, which I think we planted about 10 trees total because they're quite difficult to harvest. They have such a short um, shelf life from harvest and they're really delicate. But then when the fruits fall, it's also really good food for animals. So if we do lose some to the ground. Hopefully then it gets picked up after after harvest by ducks. And then we have a bunch of jujubes. Yeah, about 40 jujubes. And another 45 quince trees. Just things that we've seen grow well and that we also really like and are kind of specialty items that we thought bring something a little bit interesting to market. And then a bunch of olives that we're kind of using as a bit of um, a windbreak on the edges of our property. Um, But we hope we can harvest those as well. And then a lot of blackberries and other berries. I'm going to do a little experiment this year trying to grow some medicinal herbs with a friend up the valley who's has been studying to be a herbalist. Giselle also tells us about their current customers, including the Cape Hay Valley Farm Shop, a farmer and community-owned food hub in the Cape Hay Valley. The eggs at the moment go to a local food hub, and then I also sell them through Facebook to some people, like individual customers in Davis. I would like to get into a market at some point soon. So maybe when, I think we have our biggest harvest in the autumn, so I'll find out a bit before then. Yeah, to go to a farmer's market. And I think we are getting ready to maybe approach a few restaurants and see if they would be interested in our eggs. Through the farm shop, that's also where restaurants can like order from. And we've heard that they are looking for quince. So we will have those. So up here in the valley, uh, it's a lot of small organic farmers. And quite a few years ago, we decided to to sort of invest in a company that would be an aggregator. 
And that company's been through lots of different permutations. At one time, Giselle was selling vegetables on the side of the road in Cape Hay, not very successfully. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it's really found its its place now. It now has a, a building down in Esparto, and it um, it really has identified good markets. We invested in it very you know very minor years ago, and I'm on the board of it. But we're really happy to see that that exists and that that does will provide us a market with, for example, the duck eggs, which is a you know a special thing, and you have to reach out to populations that would be interested in duck eggs and understand them. So that's one of our big hopes for marketing. Well, so their, their real success came um, before COVID because they were selling to the corporate kitchens in San Francisco. And then suddenly those just shut down completely. And they had their best years, you know, during that time. But they've actually gone on and had even almost as good of years because the manager has just been brilliant and she's just pivoted and figured out, you know, during COVID, all of a sudden, many of the food hubs like Mendo Lake and uh, Sonoma and Tahoe, they, their customers really wanted boxed food and they didn't have enough to supply it. So she was supplying to them and, then, and also food banks. And then she's, she has really very successfully found other markets. So it's not just these corporate markets. Oh, Good Eggs is, is their biggest buyer, actually. Throughout this season, we have talked about food safety practices for fresh produce farms. But Vidisanova's farm also has to balance food safety in conjunction with their free-range ducks. The farm initially wanted to integrate the ducks throughout their orchard year-round, but realized duck activity during harvest season is risky from a food safety perspective. Giselle tells us about their plans to reduce food safety risks while also allowing the ducks to continue to roam. So our little flock of ducks, um, at the moment, they just free range wherever they want. But we will need at some point to start bringing them off of the orchard and the swales when we're 90 days before we think we're going to harvest. So we're working out that whole system. Yeah, we just got two rolls of the like poultry netting, electric poultry netting, so that we can make them areas. And then we also want to make them an actual like pasture that we irrigate a bit in the summer. So they're in their own section, but they still have a lot of forage area. You might be wondering why the farm would wait 90 days from having ducks in the orchard to harvest. Giselle is referencing the 90 to 120 day rule established by the National Organic Program. The 90 to 120 day rule states that raw or uncomposted animal manures must be applied at least 90 days prior to harvest for crops whose edible portions do not come into contact with the soil, like fruit trees and sweet corn, and at least 120 days prior to the harvest of crops whose edible portions do come into contact with the soil, like leafy greens and melons. Following the National Organic Program guidelines can help minimize the risk of contamination of produce from raw manure because the chance of pathogen survival in raw manure decreases as the time between raw manure application and harvest increases. The Food Safety Modernization Act recommends growers follow these guidelines as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, continues to conduct research about application intervals for raw manure. Using logs is a good way to keep track of animal rotations on the farm, but as of now, Vitisanova's farm is still deciding the best path forward. We're still trying to decide. For now, we just thought we will just take them completely off 
And then as different areas get harvested, we kind of let them back out because just the first harvest is the closest to the duck pen. So it seems like we could easily let them go back out. But the farm is taking measures to reduce the risk of cross-contamination between the ducks, their feces, and the crops. Uh, I think the biggest thing is that we're going to make a better separation between the duck area and our packing and post-harvest area. I haven't figured out the exact system, but some way that shoes are kept either separate shoes or little booties when it's... And we're going to work on this when it's like around harvest time. At this time of year, there's not too much concern about it. But yeah, we also have that in the employee training that I have put together. They are also thinking about bigger infrastructure changes to reduce the risk of cross-contamination. Giselle describes their setup. So it's one sort of big, open, very open barn, which we took the left, the right side of and turned it into a duck coop. And we sort of made a bit of a wall there, but we're going to make a double wall and a little hallway sort of entrance so that it's really separate from the rest of the barn. We just want to make sure that there is total separation between the animal side of the barn versus the uh, food processing uh, side uh, of the barn. And uh, we'll, we'll do this. And the plans are already ready to, to, have, to have this separation. And uh, in between will be basically a, a passageway, which will allow us also to store the feed, the grain, whatever straw we need for the animals. And so there will be a pr- proper clean separation between the two. The, I think what's going to be more important here is to, again, training of the people going from one side to the other, you know, how you do that. And um, again, uh, there will have to be some discipline, uh, changing shoes, for example, and yeah, uh, uh, maybe changing clothes sometimes also, uh, when, when you do for all, well, mainly when you start to do the cleaning out of the animal shed. So, but um, yeah, these are things we We'll take seriously to make sure that we don't have any contamination. Our first idea was that the ducks would really be almost the whole time going in and out around the orchard, and we would we were going to have like a portable water pool, yeah, a, a pool for the a trough that we could sort of pull around all summer, and then the water would go out and help water the plants, and it would be some extra nutrients. And then, yeah, that. In that sort of idea doesn't really fit too well with food safety, so we've had to adjust that. There's many benefits from having the livestock integrated, so trying to, to work out what really is causing food safety issues and what isn't. And I think the other issue is, is also wildlife. I mean, we're here you know, next to a really beautiful oak forest, and, and we have deer, and to what extent do we need to try to eliminate the wildlife from the, the, the whole ecosystem, or can we find a way to live together with them? So those are questions that we really have and would like to help address. Barbara brings up a great point about wildlife activity and maintaining food safety on farms. As Danny Karp explained a few episodes ago, research shows that maintaining biodiversity on farms can be beneficial for food safety. If you suspect wildlife activity on your farm, like deer or wild turkeys, there are options aside from eliminating or excluding the animals. For example, 
farms can implement a regular monitoring practice before and during harvest that would involve looking for signs of animal intrusion, like bite marks on produce or feces in the field. If a farmer notices signs of animal intrusion, establishing a no-harvest buffer zone of at least two feet around the contaminated area can help reduce risks of spreading the contamination. Another option would be for a grower to use non-life-threatening deterrents, such as fences or noise cannons, to deter animals from entering their fields. For those farms who are affected by FSMA, the regulation also makes it clear that FDA's food safety rules must not conflict with organic regulations. FSMA also does not require covered farms to exclude animals from outdoor growing areas, to destroy animal habitat, or clear farm borders around outdoor growing areas. Giselle and Hans have also been busy preparing their packing and washing area in other ways. My dad worked really hard on the, on a, we had a cooler, a cold room, and we had horse mats on the floor. And we realized when you came for a tour that those were not ideal flooring for a cooler because we couldn't really like scrub them and clean them. So as part of like a whole deep cleaning of the cold room, my dad put in an epoxy floor so we can really clean it out very well now when we need. Start harvesting? Yeah, well, we've put in now, we have our three compartment sink. So when we need to do like proper washing and sanitizing and rinsing, we are prepared for that. And then we've also just worked out SOPs for how we would harvest and just knowing that totes in the field, like never touch the ground. You know, we have a lot more knowledge, I would say, on what to do when it's harvest time and then how we bring it back into our shed for packing. Because we are, there was a building there which we use for many things. And so it takes always to rearrange things, you know, sort of, uh, so it takes a while, I think, until you have rearranged everything. So, and then hopefully, you, you do it so that it's flexible. I think that's the whole thing. It has to be space which can be flexible. And w what we saw when we visited that uh, farm in Sacramento, again, a very open space. You can see things can be moved around easily. All right, your, your cool room, your freezer, walk-in freezer, all this, they are, they are in one place. But the rest, where you do your different storing material, your crates, your harvesting crates and everything else, um, again, that can be uh, flexible and we'll maintain it like this because until we really have worked out the different crops and harvest times, so how this, this flows throughout the year, we'll keep it very flexible and, and, and movable. And that makes it somehow so, somewhat interesting, but also a bit of a challenge, you know, sort of to not have to move the same thing five times. So if we can put the more things you can have on wheels, the better. We're actually thinking about the sink, but then you have all the water connection to it and yeah, the power, wanted, so it becomes a bit Yeah, we wanted hot water in our sink, so then that meant we, could, we can't totally move it around yeah. as easy, but yeah. yeah, we could if we really needed somewhere else. Next, Dizelle and Hans describe how SOPs help with post-harvest processing of elderberries. Elderberries have also a really short... Um, fresh shelf life. So as soon as you harvest them, you have to de-stem them and then you wash and sanitize the berries and then you can pack them into usually like a 
five gallon square bucket and then just freeze them immediately. And we will see if we can process further. I mean, for all the fruit, mm-hmm. particularly the ones that are short lived, mm-hmm. maybe free, freeze dry, make powders. So we'll, we'll see how much we can sell fresh, just frozen, and how much we'll have to process further. Because I think the trick here also is to to make the best out of our harvest, which means to add value as much as possible on the farm. And I think that's what everybody, every farmer is trying to do these days, is add value um, to the products and also make sure that there's no waste. And I think that if one is equipped to process at different levels, uh, you can reduce wastage to almost zero. And that's, I think, one of the important parts of, you know, having a flourishing business. Eventually, we want to do a lot more post-harvest processing, but that also comes with a whole nother <laughs> level of food safety and other guidelines. So we're just taking it one step at a time. And, and luckily, we have yeah an investment. We're working up to that. That's our long-term goal. Traceability means being able to trace produce from the field where it was grown to the customer who purchased it. In other words, one step forward and one step back. Traceability can involve written records and logs that document planting and harvest activities and labels and codes that are affixed to boxes. Many farms can decide which traceability system works best for them. Giselle tells us about the traceability system at Vitis and Ovis Farm. A part of the food plan, I had to map the farm. And so then I was able to, I've made really, we have clear blocks with names so that we can then make, as we harvest, we can make labels with like what area of the farm this fruit came from, and then a system for tracking the date that it was harvested. It will go on boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of our, whatever our packaging looks like, I'm not totally sure yet. With lots of progress made this year, Giselle shares what lies ahead for the farm. What we're really excited is just to see how the swales all work out. I mean, this year we already got, at least we got two storms. So we had some water and we could really see how the water flowed. And we really, we had a tiny little bits where there was a bit of erosion, but we know how to fix that. And just to see how the water holds in those systems. Also, the ducks loved it. It was like great little like swimming pools for them. (laughs) So I think long term, since there's not many people growing elderberries on a slightly more commercial scale. I'm really excited that we're starting to do that. And I'm in a, there's a few groups of people doing this in California and at least for the native, the ceruleas, there's not too many, a few people up in Washington, I think. But anyways, there's a, we know some neighbors who have planted some. And I think having eventually a kind of a cooperative where we have the post-harvest equipment to really do larger scale destemming. Um, And then maybe even the further processing would be really exciting. And then also we just would like to see our farm become actually profitable. We know that like, you know, when you're planting a lot of trees, it's going to take a little bit of time, but that's definitely our long-term goal. There are also some exciting plans to connect more with farmers in their area and spread the word about true cost accounting. Well, I think it's it's always a real challenge for a small farmer. So, you know, we're looking at, at what... You know, what we can really um, sort of advertise of what we do. And something that Hans and I have both been involved in is this whole concept of true cost accounting. Where, you know, right now it's funny that, that you have to pay more for organic. Why should you not pay more for the, those products that have been produced 
using pesticides and you know possibly polluting the environment. So to try and change that playing field is something that I just worked with other people on publishing a book on true cost accounting last year. And and we're, then we think, okay, we want how can we do that here? How can we show at least to our customers that that we're generating benefits, not just costs? I mean, there are costs. You know, we are using some water. Oddly enough, our, the level of our well has been going up over time rather than down, which is we're not exactly sure why, but at least we're not doing the wrong thing. But we want to really carefully document those different aspects and, and see how we can really make sure that the benefits are strong for the environment, you know, for ourselves, and, and just in general, perhaps more with, in the community with our neighbors. One more important uh, aspect of what we do here is to connect with the other uh, farmers in the valley and share our experiences. I think there's a lot we can learn from each other and that that's the way the community will grow around farms and sustainable farms, small, medium or even larger. So I think that's uh, what I think will be important here, you know, so that, that we we share our experiences, visit with each other and sort of see, you know, what worked, what not. Because I know that we have our problems here, other farmers have their problems. And I think that, you know, if you find a solution, a good way to, to share would be to have a little farm tours, you know, with the farmers from, from, from the valley here. Head to CAF's website for food safety resources mentioned in this episode, like SOP templates and traceability guides. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about the things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org slash farmersbeat. That's B-E-E-T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out Vitis and Ovis on Instagram at Vitis Ovis Farm and share this episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on when new episodes are released and see more pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast would not exist without funding from the California Specialty Crop Small and Medium Scale Farm Food Safety Technical Assistance Program made possible by the United States Department of Agriculture. The contents of this podcast are solely the responsibility of CAF and do not necessarily represent the official views of the USDA. We thank them for their support of this work and helping real farmers share their food safety tips to other farmers. Are you a farmer interested in being in a future episode or have questions related to this podcast? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF, sharing farm fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.